Good evening. If you have your Bibles and you want to find Ezra, you say, where is Ezra? It's right after 2 Chronicles. That's in the Old Testament, not to be confused with Corinthians. Two weeks ago, we started one of the most difficult chapters in the Old Testament, talking about um, the intermarriage to pagans. And we talked about the fact that this wasn't a racial uh, prohibition, but it was a religious prohibition that God told His people not to marry lost people. And I referenced the fact that I, I still believe that is true, that Christians should not marry unbelievers. And uh, I've pastored long enough to know that lots of people will sit in my office and say, well, I'm a believer just to get married. And so uh, my wedding policy says... Not only must you claim to be a believer, but you have to be active in a church. You say, well, Jake, you can be a believer and not be active in church. Well, I think you can, but that's called a backslidden condition. And so I don't think that's a good way to start a marriage. So uh, we talked about that a little, and we talked about the fact that Ezra realizes this, and this is the number one reason that the children of Israel had been carried into slavery. And so they're doing the very same thing that they were doing before they were carried into slavery. And um, we didn't get a chance to get through it all, but to sum it up, Ezra begins to weep. And Ezra begins to be broken over the sin of the people. And uh, I wrote these down today because Ezra was the leader that God had used for the nation of Israel. And I get a lot of calls from different churches looking for pastors. Uh, As I always tease you, they're never looking for me. They're looking for someone not like me. And if I could tell them my qualities, they'll hire someone unlike that. And um, they always ask, what should we look for in a pastor, right? And these are some of the things that I have heard from people. We need a pastor that is cool. That is, that is cool and can relate to the trends of the day. A pastor that's fun. Right? We don't want an old grouchy Southern Baptist in a suit and tie sucking the life out of a service. We want someone personable. We need someone that makes people feel like they belong. We need a winner. We need someone who's going to take the bull by the horns and be successful. I've also heard that we need a pastor who is humorous to liven up the service because sermons can be boring. But what we see in Ezra is a man who loves God and loves people. And something happens, and it's called the sin of the people, and his response is to be broken. And so I have wrote my responses to those five traits that many churches are looking for. Instead of a pastor that is cool, you need a pastor that will cry. Instead of a pastor that is fun, you need a pastor that will fast. Instead of a pastor that is personable, you need to find a pastor that is praying. Instead of a pastor that is a winner, you need a fast pastor who will weep. Instead of a pastor who is humorous, you need one that is humble. And you say, Jake, where did you get that list from? Well, I'm really glad that you asked because we are going to see it in Ezra. And tonight I want to lead with this idea. Many times I have caught flack for the altar calls that I do. 
Um, many times I will encourage you as God's people to come to the altar and lead by example. I've seen people on Facebook. I've walked into conversations where people are talking about, well, you shouldn't manipulate people. You shouldn't try to get them to do things they're not wanting to. And that is never my intent. But what we see here tonight is when one person will get broken over sin, God can use it to impact other people. And so if you and I are willing to step out and use the altar once in a while, shed some tears when the Spirit convicts us, God will use that to free up other people to worship. You say, Jake, I don't believe that. Well, I'm glad because I'm going to prove you wrong. Starting in verse 1 in chapter 10. Now, while Ezra was praying, and you can go back and read these verses before, and he's weeping, he's, he's, he's tore his clothes, he's sitting in sackcloth and ashes and, and weeping before God. And while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very Bitterly. You see, Ezra wasn't crying over his own sin. Ezra hadn't done this sin that was infecting the people, but he was weeping over their sin. And so when I gave you a list of things that a pastor should do, as a pastor, there is times when I weep over your sin. You say, Jake, what do you mean? Well, when I watch that father who comes to church only because his wife drags him, but yet I know that throughout the week he's treating her terrible and that he is only here on Sunday to make her happy and us not bother him as much. There ought to be a time when I weep over that. It's about fasting. There ought to be times when there are things going on in your life and in my life that are so overwhelming that the Bible says that they can only be accomplished through prayer and fasting. As praying. The Bible tells me that I should pray for you and to pray for your situations, pray for your marriages, about weeping. There are times when I should weep for you, and you should weep for me. You say, Jake, that's not a very exciting view of ministry. I understand that, but there are joys in ministry, but there are also brokenheartedness in ministry. I think of a funeral. I cannot tell you how many times I have tried to keep it together during a funeral, but yet still shed many a tears. Why? Because we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we are to weep with those who weep. You say, well, thank goodness I'm not a pastor because I don't want to ride that emotional roller coaster. Well, tonight, if you love the people you go to church with, that should be you. Tonight, if you love your grandchildren, have you ever wept over them? Maybe that prodigal son or daughter who is running from God, have you ever just got alone in your prayer closet and prayed and wept knowing that they are heading in the wrong direction? You say, Jake, I believe in a happy faith. I believe in a Joel faith. If you don't know who Joel is, turn on the television and he smiles and it, it's all good, it's all healthy. And maybe God will take you through seasons of Joel. I don't know. But don't forget there will be seasons of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called what? The weeping prophet. Because why? He preached and he begged God and the people didn't listen. Ezra got to experience the exact opposite. Ezra was broken over sin and wept and begged God and the people turned. 
And so tonight I want you to know that your children coming back to God is out of your control. But the tears and prayers you shed for them is under your control. The hours that you spend fasting and praying for that lost neighbor, the hours that you spend humbly coming before God saying, God, if you don't get us through this marriage trouble, we are not going to make it. Those are your responsibility and mine. I believe the reason that our churches are so cold and dead is because God's people won't worship like this in public. You say, well, Jake, it would just be phony. I know people who could cry on the drop of a hat. And I know people who can stand up in prayer time and make it all about them. I am not talking about that. But today, if you and I watching what is going on in our nation does not bother us, we are spiritually dead. If you and I are not broken over our family members that are lost, we're spiritually dead. You say, Jake, my kids, they were raised in church. They made a profession of faith. They're just sowing their wild oats or they're just running from God, but they will return. You ought to be praying without ceasing for them. Praying for your lost parents, your lost family, your lost friends. And so as we start chapter 10, there are some things I want to really call to your attention tonight as we are in a season of brokenness. I can promise you that Christians in Ukraine are probably in a season like this of begging God to spare their children, begging God to protect them and their family, begging God to provide for them the needs that they have. And as Christians, we ought to be doing what with our brothers and sisters through trials and tribulations? Praying and sympathizing with them. And so it starts out in verse 1 and says, Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down, tonight if you want to get serious about the sin in your life, and if you want to get serious about God working in your life, you need these qualities. You need to start by confessing. You and I as Christians should be confessing on a daily basis. God, whatever sin is in my life, show me. God, whatever sin is in my life, convict me. I have uh, heard people say, well, I believe in sinning a lot so God can forgive me a lot. The Apostle Paul literally said, that's not a good excuse. <laughs> we don't sin more because grace abounds. That's not how that works. But yet many people will say that. I even used to joke that that's why I was putting on weight because when the rapture happens, it's not a miracle if God only raises up a 150-pound person, but if I weigh 550 pounds, now that is some serious miracle working. That is a terrible excuse to be eating unhealthy. But we see here that he confessed. And tonight I want you to know that if you are not having a daily time or a, 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 a time of prayer where you get alone with God and say, God, forgive me, you'll never see God move in your life. Because we ought to be continually reminded that we are sinners. You say, well, Jake, my sin's not as bad as it used to. Any of it's bad. Any of it's a rebellion against God. And so, when we read the great verse from Second Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, there is no humbling in America today. We blaspheme God, we, we mock God, we make fun of God, but yet we want God involved. And it doesn't work that way. And to the church at Ten Mile, 
I would tell you it doesn't work that way for us. We can show up and sing wonderful songs. We can sing, uh, have wonderful song services and wonderful Bible studies and, and wonderful sermons. And you're saying, well, I've heard the sermons. They're not wonderful. I understand that. But if you and I are not getting serious about the sin in our life, we should not expect God to move. And it says here he was confessing and he was weeping. He wasn't weeping over his sin. Don't miss this. But the sin of other people. And so, he's not judging here, he's heartbroken. And I ask you that, do you ever just talk to someone and you know their situation and you just think, man, I just my heart breaks for them. I am just so, I hate that. I hate that for her. She's so sweet and her husband's an idiot. I pray that way a lot. Not just for me, but for other people. But you probably know people like that. Maybe you know a parent who raised their children in church, and man, they were faithful, and, and, and they did the same things you did, and now their kid is a hard-hearted atheist that wants nothing to do with God. And sometimes we can say, well, they must have been a hypocrites at home. No, that's not the case. That child made a choice to rebel from the faith. We should weep with them. And bowing down, it's a sign of humility. He's just saying, God, if you don't do this, nothing will get done. You say, Jake, I pray that way when I'm at home by myself in my prayer closet. And you should. But don't miss where Ezra's doing this at. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing and weeping and bowing down, where? Before the house of God. Right out in front of everyone. You say, oh, Jake, I could never use the altar during the song service if the Spirit of God began to move me and, and I needed to repent. I, I, couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Maybe you should. Well, man, I, I don't know. I, I tell you, I was sitting during that sermon and I really began to fall under conviction and I, I just felt like the Lord wanted me to get, get down there and do some business with Him, but I, just, I couldn't because that's not... Listen to me. It would do us good to allow the Spirit of God to knock the cobwebs out and to bust up some of the box that we have put God in. And because look what happens. A very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to Him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. They understand something. This man is leading by example. The Spirit of God is dealing with them and they realize they've sinned. I ask you this question tonight, and we don't know the answer. But the question is, would they have came and done this if Ezra hadn't led by example? I don't know. But what I can tell you is, we should not, we should not discount the fear that people have and how us leading by example can help them overcome those fears. And it says in verse 2, and Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. You see, when they wept, they didn't just weep because they were sorry. <coughs> they wept and acknowledged their sin. <coughs> Excuse me. I know a lot of people that can weep under the right situations at church. Get them to church camp, get them in a revival meeting, and they can weep 
And so we see here this simple idea that they are admitting their sin. And they are talking about a specific sin. Now, all of us are guilty of probably saying, God, forgive me of my sins. There's nothing wrong with that. But we ought to be willing to confess our specific sins when we know what they are. We ought to be willing to get along with God and say, Lord, I, I, I need to ask for forgiveness for my language. God, I need to ask for forgiveness for my unforgiveness in my heart. We need to be specific when we ask for forgiveness of sin. Not that God doesn't know or forgive us, but we see that. And what he says here is that even though we have sinned, even though we've fallen short, there is hope in Israel. And then I really want you to hear that because many times what we see is when people fall into sin, we don't want to admit it first. Let's just be clear. I meet with people all the time about all kinds of things. And what I always hear is this. Well, I know I did that wrong, but I was raised this way. Or that's how someone else at church talked to me. Or, or, or that's what my wife did. That's not how you come to God. You have to come to God and say, Lord, here I am. And I have sinned. God can take care of other people, convicting them, dealing with them. But listen to this. Not only did they repent of their sin, they began to say what they were going to do differently. And that's really what repentance is. Turning from the way we are going to the way that God wants us to go or who He is. In verse 3 it says, Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives of those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my Master and of those who tremble at the commandment of God. And let it be done according to the law. Now let's stop there. Because if you're me, like I was when I was reading this, the New Testament says, though, that God, the Bible says, excuse me, that God hates divorce. But yet, the Bible is telling him right here to put away these wives. And so, we're thinking, okay, how do we explain this in a biblical way? Not overlooking it like most people would, and not explaining it away. If you remember what the rabbis and the elders and the priests said to Jesus about divorce and remarriage, and Jesus said, in the beginning it was not so. But Moses gave you a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your heart. So the Jewish culture was one where you could leave marriage, jump into marriage, you could take multiple wives, and it wasn't that God had said that's what you should do, but it also didn't say that it wasn't what you shouldn't do. And so, anytime you give people an inch, they do what? Take a mile. And the Jewish people had run all over this. And so, what we see here is, though, that God doesn't stop them from doing it. Ezra says this is the right thing to do. But what we need to understand is this is a bad situation, and they are doing the best they can in the difficulty. And that's why I think the Bible is true, because the Bible is full of stuff that I would have left out. I would have left this out. I'd have left the fact that they were running around marrying people they shouldn't have in the first place. But history is history. The truth is the truth, even if I don't like it or I don't understand it. And I think it's interesting here in this passage of Scripture, because look what it says in verse 4. He tells Ezra, Arise. For this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you, 
Be of good carriage and do it. Now, this is a typical Baptist, I think, right here. Pastor, we got some sexual sin in the church. (laughs) And we know it ought to be dealt with. And so you need to quit praying and fasting and weeping and jump right on that. You need to go make that visit. You need to go have that discussion. You are going to bear the brunt of this. And I want to say two things to that. It absolutely was Ezra's responsibility. He was God's man for God's job. And Ezra could have said no, but he would have been unfaithful. And I can tell you, over the last few years, I have sat through more meetings that have broke my heart. I have sat through more meetings where I've been called everything other than a white man. And in those moments, I've thought, it ain't worth it. It is not worth it. I will go be a human resource manager at General Tire. I will go flip hamburgers and get a free meal at McDonald's. I have even begged to be the church janitor. But if God has called you and given you a task, you cannot abandon your post. Husbands, tonight I want to speak to you for just a moment. You are the head of your home. You might not like that in a liberal women's movement today, but the Bible says you are the spiritual leader of your home. You say, well, Jake, my wife doesn't want to listen. My kids don't want to listen. does not matter. You cannot abandon your post. Now, don't use that to be a jerk. You're not to lord it over your children to provoke them to wrath. You're to love your wife like Christ loves the church. But America's problems today are because fathers have quit. It's that simple. Ninety plus percent of children in East St. Louis tonight will go home and go to bed in a home where the father does not live there. And that trend is applicable and consistent with every big city. And you wonder why big cities are a mess. Churches on every corner, multiple after-school programs, multiple millions and millions of dollars being poured into those communities by the government. But the key to society is the family. And so, fathers, I'm telling you today, it is your responsibility. And you cannot abdicate from that position. Mothers, it is your responsibility to be the mothers that God wants you to be. You say, Jake, I'm tired of trying to be the spiritual leader of my home because my husband is a deadbeat. Tonight I want you to know that I cannot imagine what that's like, being a spiritual person, to take both roles. But do not quit. The Apostle Paul told women who live with terrible husbands that because of your influence, some of your husbands will be one. And that the home will come under the influence of a godly woman. Your kids might not want to listen. They might not think it's cool to have rules and restrictions and have to come to church on Wednesday night and Sunday night and have prayer before you go to bed. But do not abandon the responsibility that God has given you. That is why the number one qualification for a pastor that begins to disqualify you, according to the Word of God, is if your home is not in order. And so tonight, maybe God has called you to be a Sunday school teacher. Maybe God has called you to be a nursery worker. Maybe God has called you to be a front door greeter. If God has called you to it, do not abandon your post. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. 
The second thing I would like to say is that <laughs> don't be a jerk and dump everything on the pastor. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Because look what it says in the second line here. We are all with you. See, the, they're encouraging him by saying, yes, it is your responsibility, but we're with you. We're going to stand beside you. I can promise you over the years, I've been in lots of meetings. <laughs> I've sat with deacons and trustees and other pastors and, and not all, and sat in meetings and heard people say one thing and get up and leave a meeting and go to another one and the person say exactly the same thing. It's just the way it goes. And so if you're going to get serious about your relationship with God, you cannot just stand for things that are right or wrong when no one's around. You have to be willing to stand when the fire is hot. It says here, be of good courage and what? Do it! <laughs> right? They're telling him, hey, it's time to suck it up, buttercup, get back to work because the things of God are worth fighting for. And before we take questions, I want to read verse 5. Because Ezra is no dummy. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priest, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. He says, oh yeah, I've been in enough committee meetings to know you guys are all fire and brimstone right here. But the moment we sit across from that person that's causing all the trouble, you will melt like butter. He says, I want you to swear to God that you will put your money where your mouth is. And I'm thinking that's a pretty wise thing. Because that's what he says. It is a commitment to do what is right regardless of the cost. And I can tell you it is easy to sit one-on-one -on -one and talk about the problems that church has. It's a whole other thing to sit across from the people that are causing the problem and having that same very conversation. <laughs> I have seen people that had a backbone of iron melt when the pressure is on. And so Ezra just says, if you all think this is what we should do, I'm on board. But you're going to stand with me. You are going to enter into this battle with me. And I see that all the time. I know, uh, uh, if you didn't know this or not, an or a congratulation is in order for Tristan. Uh, Tristan uh, just got married on the 22nd day of the 22nd uh, year of the second day of the month, I believe. And so congratulations, Tristan, uh, uh, him and Melissa. But I have seen lots of people start out in a marriage and say, we're committed. In my wedding policy, there's an article that says you will never consider divorce. It's not an option. You are committing today that no matter how bad it gets, you might go live in your mom's basement for six months maybe, but that divorce is not on the table. And I can tell you that over my years of doing weddings, and I've done very, very few of them, when push comes to shove, you know what that clause means to people? Nothing. Just something they said to get married. And so tonight I want to challenge you. If you're going to be used by God, you need to know that you've got to not only be broken, and you've got to be willing, but you've got to be willing to put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, I mean, the Bible literally tells us that the pastor's job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. But in our churches, let's be honest, we think, well, we pay Jake a bunch of money, let's just let him do it. 
And I'm all for doing it because I've dealt with volunteers enough to know it's easier for me just to do it myself than to try to get a committee together and have a business meeting and round up volunteers. I'd rather just do it on my own. But that's not what the Bible says, right? But you're right. But look what it says in verse 6. Then Ezra rose up before the house of God and went into the chambers of Jehonanon, the son of Elishib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. So even though he has decided to do it, his brokenness hasn't changed. And so I think that serving God, there are times of great brokenness, there are times of brokenness, but yet we still continue to move on. And so in verses 7 and 8, they issue this proclamation that says, all the men who came with us in three days' time, you have to report to Jerusalem. You have to report to this meeting. It's kind of like the first ever town hall uh, in this time period here. Uh, but if you don't, you're going to lose everything. Your property, your your uh, all your inheritance is gone. Because this is a matter of God's Word and God's principles, and all God's people should be here. It's kind of like the idea of this. We're going to have a business meeting next Sunday night, which we are. And all members of Ten Mile are to be here. And if you're not here, all of your property, possessions are going to be confiscated and divided among other church members. Can you imagine the attendance we'd have? It actually probably wouldn't get any better. A bunch of you would just say, well, it's all about the money. I'll go to the church down the street. But that's exactly what they did here. Because they said, we have got to get this right. We have got to deal with this sin before it destroys our nation and destroys our home, destroys our life. And so in verse 9, it just talks about in three days, the ninth month, the twelfth of the month, all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. (laughs) Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. Verse 12, Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, have you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season of heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in the cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and judges of their cities, until the fierce wrath of our God (coughs) is turned away from us in this matter. And so what they say is, This is a big issue. It's not just one or two people. So let's assign the spiritual leaders of each town to deal with it accordingly. They're breaking up the work. They're spreading it out, right? It's kind of like when Moses' father-in-law said, you cannot sit here and judge the people all day, every day. You've got to appoint people to help you. And so that's what they do. Now I want to stop here for just a moment. Because something happens. The people say, yes, this is what we want. But I also want to be very clear here that I believe from my studying that just because they had married a pagan wife doesn't mean that all of them had to be put away. From what the study that I have found is, is 
Some of the wives they married converted to Judaism. They became proselytes. They became Jews in the faith. And if you read the Old Testament, that is acceptable, right? David married a few women who shouldn't have married. He married some who did join the faith. The the Old Testament is full of Jewish people marrying non-Jewish people. All right. But in those cases, they were required to become Jewish. And so what he's talking about here, I think my opinion in the best applicable interpretation is if you married someone, they have continued to keep their old pagan ways. They have continued to rebel and reject the things of God. Then you need to separate from them. If you remember in the great story of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, <clears throat> when they left the nation of Israel, the two sons married who? Moabites. Moabites. They were not Jews. But if you remember that story, when they were coming back, and she was trying to tell her daughter-in-laws to stay, and one stayed, but the other one, and you know her as said, your God is my God. Your people are my people. And so I believe what we see here is if this person was still a pagan and they were infecting the marriage in an ungodly way, are the people that were required to be put away. Now, some scholars disagree with that. And that's okay. You can disagree with me and still go to heaven. That's okay. But that's what I believe in my study of that says. Because look what it says in verse 15. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. So there is a small group of people who say, wait a second, we just can't up and put away our wives and our children and, and all of these things. We, we just can't. And so... Not only has Ezra been weeping and praying over this, not only has he committed to do this, not only have the people said we will do this, the whole nation has said they would do this, there is still opposition. And so tonight I want you to know that, that no matter what we do as a church, there will always be people who disagree. It don't matter if it is to give everyone $100 back. Someone will want 200 The only thing that all Baptists agree on is that the sermon can never be short enough. But what we see here is a small minority that disagrees. Now, I want to say this tonight. Just because someone disagrees with what the church does or the people of God does does not mean they are troublemakers. Some people that are are troublemakers, all right? But it is all right to hold difference of opinions on difficult issues from time to time. But what we see here is this was the right thing to do. And if you want to read here, and I'm not going to read all the names, but how serious it was, they named the specific families and the specific people in these chapters. And look what it says just in verses 18 and 19. And among the sons of the priest, he starts with the spiritual leaders. Judgment always starts in the house of God. It already starts with the pastors, the deacons, the Sunday school teachers, and works its way down. 
The following were found the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jezedekiah, and his brothers, Maasa, Eleazar, Jerob, and Gedaliah. And don't miss this. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. So not only do they repent, but they do turn away. In verse 44, and then we'll open up discussion which should be interesting. <clears throat> All these had taken pagan wives and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And so a couple things I want to say before we ask questions. This is not unheard of in the Old Testament. If you remember a man by the name of Abraham had a wife that God gave him. And in their sinfulness, because Sarah could not have a child at that time, she tells her husband, here is my concubine. Go in and sleep with her. And she will give you the son of promise. If you're familiar with that story, Abraham does what his wife tells him, and she's still not happy. And God's people said, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> After he gets her pregnant, has a child, she what? Hates that child, and she hates the woman that he had a relationship with. Now, I'm not the sharpest crown in the box, but even I saw that one coming, right? Dear, I want you to sleep with this woman and she's going to live and stay here with us and I'm going to help raise her child and it's going to go well. No, it's not! <laughs> and after a period of time, you know that Sarah, after continually being on Abraham, Abraham tells her to go and take the child. And if you remember, as she gets to a certain point in her journey, pretty much a hopeless position, God sends her a message, doesn't he? And says, I will make him a great nation. I will take care of you and him. But yet, in that situation, their sin put them there. But even though it was a difficult decision, God was still with them. And I believe the same is true here. I don't believe these women and children were to be thrown on the street, to be uh, not taken care of, because the Bible says to take care of the foreigner among you. To take care of those who ha cannot take care of themselves. But yet, that is what was told to do. And you say, Jake, I don't understand this. I just can't wrap my head around it. Well, you're not the only one. But what I can tell you is this. God knew that being married to a pagan and raising a generation of pagans and watching those pagans intermarry with the next generation of Jewish people would have done what? It would have watered them down and it would have caused great harm. Many of you here tonight know someone who has married someone that was not a Christian and that it hasn't gone well. You know that. I, have, I meet with people on a regular basis that will tell me, Jake, I wish I would have listened to my parents when they told me not to marry that person. But I was young. I was in love. My parents told me I shouldn't, so I did. And now you've got children and grandchildren, and it's, it's hard, and it's difficult. 
And, and it's, it's a challenge. And we know that the Bible tells us the New Testament truths are revealed to us in the New Testament that we did not fully understand in the Old Testament, right? That's what the Bible tells us, especially about Jesus. And so on the issue of marriage, you say, Jake, why didn't God specifically tell them to stop getting Harlems and stop getting concubines? And, and why didn't God tell them to, 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 to not do these things? And, and, and why, where, what, are, what is the problem here? Well, God told them many positives, right? That the marriage bed should be undefiled. That he who finds a wife finds a treasure. But in the New Testament, the teaching on marriage is specifically clarified. One man, one woman, right? It even teaches that all the way back in Genesis. But apparently they didn't get it, right? That a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. But in the New Testament, we see Jesus really fulfill all this teaching. And then Paul specifically fills out the teaching on marriage. And so you say, well, Jake, it was done in the Old Testament. It should be done now. Oh, really? They stoned people in the Old Testament. You want to bring that back? Couldn't eat bacon in the Old Testament. You want to bring that back? And so what we see here is, once again, God's people have made a mess of things. And God extends mercy, right? God could have judged them all immediately. And so it is a messy situation. I am studying, as you know, 2 Samuel for our Sunday morning sermon series. And I'm a couple chapters ahead of you all. And it's talking about David. And how David begins to increase and the house of Saul begins to decrease. And how does the house of David begin to increase? Well, David begins to take more concubines, more wives, and have more children. And it, the Bible says his house increased, and it did. But what you don't realize until much later is that every bit of that had terrible <coughs> consequences. The three A's. Ammon... Absalom and Abinajad, I think it is, become sinful and wicked and tear David's house apart. Because why? Every sin has consequence. And sometimes our consequences are not seen until the next generation. Does God forgive? Absolutely. Does God forget? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean the consequences don't extend to the next generation, the next generation. I see it a lot in people who get saved as adults and their children were not raised in church. Uh, I was recently sitting with a family and um, the lady's mom and dad were deacons, a deacon and his wife in a, a general Baptist church for years and years and years. I mean, they were old when I was a kid, okay? And so I asked them, I said... Um, I said, how did you end up marrying into a, a non-Bible-believing uh, non family being raised in a family like yours, right? Drug to church, I'm sure. And she said, well, Jake, you have only known my parents since you've been alive. But my dad was not saved until he was 50. And so I was not raised in church. I was not raised to read my Bible. I was not raised about God in anything. And so I got married to a man who was attached to a church, didn't go, and so I just converted and became that. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, what? What? I mean, I knew them when they were 60 plus then, 
And you know, now they're in their 90s. Uh, she, he's gone on to be with the Lord. She's still living. And so the next time I saw the mother, I, I asked. And she goes, that's what happens when you don't give your life to the Lord and their kids are already out of your house. Your time of influence is what? Over. And so we should take very seriously the years that we have with our children to pour into them the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to pour into them the things of God and to lead by example. Our children should see us not only coming to church, but reading our Bible, confessing our sins when we fall short. Um, it's a miracle um, that your children know that you're a sinner. I hope you know that, right? Uh, you might convince everybody at church that you walk on water, but they know how wicked you are at home. And you've got to sometimes just admit to them, you know what, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that, I've got my own struggles, I've asked God to forgive me. Because they know. Kids don't learn hypocrisy from people that they don't see it modeled usually at home, right? Or someone that influences them. And so just really think about that in your personal life and in the influence that God has given you.